Um, we're going to do our best to um, understand in its context what this chapter represents and draw some principles that I think are very much there and that we can, we can learn from. Now, I'm not going to read the whole 30 verses because that would take up all the time, really, that I want to take. But essentially, what's going on here is um, Nehemiah appears at least at the sort of start of what's dealt with in this chapter is away. He's gone back uh, to serve the king in Babylon. And some, so some of this stuff that we're going to find out about is going on in his absence, and he comes back and uncovers it all. He may well be an older man by this point. We don't know exactly, but that's worth thinking about. Our culture tends to see younger people as decisive and older people as sort of gently fading away. But actually, Nehemiah is nothing if not decisive. Our culture, I said, not us in here, Rosemary. Well, we, have, we, we dance to a different beat in here, of course. Um, Nehemiah is nothing if not decisive in this chapter, right? And uh, he may well be a, an older man by the time he does it. So none of the fire has gone out of his belly anyway. And, um, uh, and essentially, in this chapter, he uncovers or observes five signs of spiritual decline amongst the people of Israel. And so let's quickly work through what these are. Verses 1 to 3, this is something that actually happened and had nothing to do with him, this particular episode. Um, We're just told about it in the book. That essentially, Ammonites and Moabites, that's two different ethnic groups, were being admitted into the assembly of God's people. Now, for historic reasons that are uh, are laid out there, the the, um, the book of Moses, essentially, had precluded Ammonites and Moabites from being part of God's people. We can debate the justice of that and all the rest of it, but for the purposes of this evening, that's just how it was. These were Israel's spiritual enemies. And they were just being let in. So the first thing that was going wrong is they were befriending the enemy. Now, I'm not talking here about what Jesus talks about in terms of loving your enemies. We're talking about spiritual enemies here. So we would think of it as evil spirits. They were just being allowed in, okay? The contemporary equivalent. Or, or if you like, allowing people who are obviously not Christians to just come straight in and be at the heart of our, our, our actual... Not, not just be welcome, we would totally be up for that, but we're just in, adopting their values the same as everyone else's. There's no challenge. There's no, there's no boundary to the community, in other words. Anyone and everyone can just come on in and everyone's views are as good as anybody else's. Spiritual enemies are being befriended. Secondly, just reflect on that. If Richard Dawkins came to church, he is very welcome. But he will never be given a place of prominence in the Christian community, or he shouldn't be, until he repents of his atheism. Right? Israel were just letting their enemies walk straight into the center of their community life. And Actually, that got reversed, as we'll see, not by Nehemiah, but by the reading of the scripture and people spontaneously repenting. Secondly, the, um, the temple, which uh, was meant to be used, obviously, for the worship of God and, and housing uh, the people who served God, was kind of being rented out by the high priest to a friend of his who happened to be one of... Um, 
Nehemiah's enemies. If you're familiar with the book, if you've been along before, this guy Tobiah, Nehemiah's had run-ins with him in the past. Nehemiah has now sort of backdoored, sorry, Tobiah has now backdoored Nehemiah and befriended the high priest who in his weakness has allowed him to use a room in the temple just as his personal dwelling. And that was a, a room that had previously been used and was designed to be used for more spiritual purposes. You can read about it there. The third problem was that the gifts of, of God's people, the tithes that were prescribed in the Old Testament, were not being collected. And consequently, those who were supposed to serve in the temple had not been paid, and they'd all gone off back home. So the people called by God to serve were not a serve and lead, were not doing it. And, um, and the money was not being taken, collected up uh, for their provision. Fourthly, they'd stopped observing the Sabbath, which was clearly commanded in the Old Testament, and uh, they'd stopped it basically for commercial reasons. Let's work seven days a week, not six, because we can make more money. And that was a, in direct defiance of God's command to honour him by taking a day of rest, one in seven. And then finally... Uh, there's this, uh, he uncovers or he observes that men of Judah were marrying women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And so essentially at this point, they're not only marrying outside of the community of God's people, they are marrying people who are absolutely opposed to the culture and the religion of the Israelites. And furthermore, as a result of that, the children who were being born, born to those marriages uh, not only were not becoming faithful followers of God, they didn't even know how to speak the language of Judah. All right. These were the signs of spiritual decline. And what we see here is that God provides resources. All Here's, here's a principle for you, right? It comes from sociology of religion. All religious communities, just like all, all human institutions tend over time to lose sight of what they exist for and become more preoccupied with their own continuance than with the principles for which they exist. Does that make sense? They become more concerned with their continued existence than they are in serving the principles for which they exist. And that leads to ludicrous... Um, ludicrously institutionalized religious organizations, I could take you to some not very far from here, that actually look like a museum of spirituality of a previous age, and they are fiercely defending this, when God, I believe, would be calling them to say, I didn't call you to the generation of 100 years ago, I called you to this generation. What we've got here is the forces of institutionalization. They just want to go on. They don't want to take hard decisions. They don't want to change. They just drift into whatever is easiest. And God gives us resources for, for stopping that happening. And there's two of them here. I think there's more actually in the scriptures. For example, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned here. And it seems to me the Holy Spirit would probably be the primary resource uh, the personal presence of God in the community. But part of what the Holy Spirit does, if you like, is he gives us the scriptures 
And so the first problem is reversed when the people hear the scriptures confronting their behavior and they repent. So that's, that's, that's one resource that is highlighted here. But the other is he gives leadership to the church. And it is my belief that the primary goal of leaders is obviously to honor God, but the reason they're called into leadership is to be able to resist this tendency towards institutionalization and say, no, our goal is to make sure that this church or this business or whatever it is remains true to the values, the purpose for which it was founded, not just saying the worst thing that could possibly happen is we disappear, so let's be really risk averse and take safe decisions. The irony, the paradox is that that always leads to death in the end. Courage always feels really risky, but it's courageous organisations that normally thrive as long as it's balanced with enough wisdom that you don't start doing crazy stuff. Now, uh, there's an awful lot more I could say about all of that, and I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to determine not to. Let's just look at how Nehemiah goes about confronting this. As I say, he's certainly not sure of courage. Um, so first of all, there's this business with Tobiah living in the temple, which clearly shouldn't have been happening because he was living in rooms that should have been housing all the gifts that were brought into the temple. So what does he do? He goes to Tobiah and respectfully asks him to leave and negotiates a payoff. No. Uh, we read um, verse 9, sorry, verse uh, 8. I was greatly displeased threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room, gave orders to purify the room, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. How different, uh, pretty different in the extreme uh, to the church when I think of the incident with the lamp in one of my churches where we threw away a very old lamp, and oh my goodness, there was a debate at the church meeting about the destruction of the lamp, which was given by some obviously very saintly person of years ago and was to be kept forever uh, in its little place. Um, I know another church meeting where they argued about the fact that somebody had thrown away some teaspoons. And uh, did the pastor realise that those teaspoons were given by Mrs. So-and-so who collected the coupons on the back of her Kellogg's cornflakes packets to get those for the church? And now you've just callously thrown them away. Well, um, they want to deal with uh, Nehemiah. So he just threw to buy stuff out. This was not democracy. This was autocracy. All right, secondly, um, the ministry was not being provided for. So all the Levites and the musicians who needed to be supported, they'd all gone home um, and, um, and, and the worship was not being maintained. What, what happened? He rebuked the officials. He asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Called them together and got them to do their jobs and then started bringing in the gifts, reinstated the tithe, and got the whole thing sorted out. Now, that's all said in a few verses there from, oh, 11 through to 13. But I bet that was quite a job, actually. And I bet he didn't have, have, have some arguments. Thirdly, uh, or fourthly on our thing, here with the Sabbath, these people who are coming in and, and having market day on the Sabbath... In, uh, in Jerusalem, what does he do? He just closes the gates. He doesn't have a big discussion with them. He just closes the gates and says, there you go, you can't now. And then he finds people are camping outside, waiting for the first moment. So they're not observing the Sabbath now. They're camping outside so they can get on with commerce the minute they can. And he goes out and he confronts them all. 
and says, you're wasting your time, you're not going to get in any earlier. Go home and observe the Sabbath. All right. And then finally, with regard to the marrying of people outside of the community, that's when the beard plucking starts. And um, so people who are marrying uh, God's enemies and therefore um, ruining the kind of purity of God's people um, and, and indeed bringing up children with no knowledge of faith or even of Jewish culture, he inflicts an act of violence on them. God gives these two resources, amongst others, to the church, the scriptures, and determined, lead determined and courageous leadership. Um, this is really... This is a challenge, I think, to me, and something that grieves me when I look at the Western church. As I look at uh, the Western church, I don't see enough determined gospel ministers, pastors. If you, as I do, occasionally have to hang around with a whole load of pastors and you talk to them, there's an awful lot of people who are managing their congregations, not leading them. And it isn't good enough. If God calls someone into leadership, they're called to lead. And that means at times, if, if you haven't got a vision that you're moving, to, you're, you're determined to try and achieve, and if you're not determined and courageous to do that, but there's another side to that, which is there's a responsibility for church members too. Because if we get petty and give our minister an earful over a lamp or its equivalent, what happens to the minister or the leader in that case is that the next time they're thinking of doing something that they think God is calling the church to, they begin to hear echoes of all the last times they tried to do anything and how painful it got. And the temptation is to say, do you know what? It's so painful when you're falling out with church members. I'm just not going to do it. And to sink from leading into managing. Think carefully. Leaders need wisdom to know what are the real battles and not to fight every battle with their congregation. Church members also need to know when to cut leaders some slack. Very important. All right. Well, I want you to notice one other thing. Nehemiah, we've noticed throughout the book, he has a really honest relationship with God. And we hear quite often, we get to eavesdrop on his prayers. And in this one, we, we've got three prayers from Nehemiah. Verse 14, remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. And then again, remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me. And then he, um, he prays a sort of, borderline curse on his enemies remember them my God because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites oh sorry we do get a fourth one very brief one right at the end remember me with favor my God his prayers are a little bit disappointing they're not the perfect kind of prayers that we think we ought to pray maybe you pray much more correct prayers but I'm not really into correct prayers if I'm honest I mean I do it to a certain extent because it's expected particularly when I pray in public but the truth is, we should just be totally honest with God. He's not impressed by high vocabulary. In fact, if you start showing off to people, I don't think God's interested in your prayer. These kind of just honest prayers from the heart. A long time ago, I, 
I remember confessing some sin to God that I, I felt I needed to get clear, clear of. And I started using sort of polite language for what I'd done. I thought, what am I doing here? I'm trying to spin to God. It's like completely pointless. He, he knows about it already. He doesn't even need me to tell him about it. I might as well be honest. Honest prayers are much better. All right. I have a few questions for you to think about for five minutes. What signs of spiritual decline do you see in the Western church or in our church or in your own life? Do you think that Nehemiah went too far? Personally, I don't advocate the hair pulling. And what do you feel God is putting on your heart to change in your life or in the community? We have a church of 350 members. I would rather have 35 who are committed to seeing God doing things in the world and committed to the change God wants and 350 who could see the problems and don't do anything about it. So what do you feel God is putting on your heart to change and what are you going to do about it? These are my questions. So I suggest you spend five minutes or so choosing one of those questions and maybe talking about it with the person next to you if you're comfortable doing that. Uh, you obviously can't discuss all of them. There's a lot there. And then uh, Tim will pick up with the service goes forward. So spend, spend a few minutes. If you want to just sit and think about that on your own, that's fine. But it's good to talk to other people and get their perspectives. How do you understand it? Do, do you have a Sabbath in your life? If you're single, would you marry a non-Christian? Does this passage speak into that at all? What about your prayer life? Is it honest? Gritty, like Nehemiah's?